Tell you what, if you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. Question for you, did anybody not get one of these um, itineraries for our church for October, November? You need one? Tell you what, just, if you would, pass it. Uh, just raise your hand, and Juliana will get one to you, and that will be cool. All right. So we finished up our series on the five eternal metaphors, and we're going to now move into a new series. It's going to last about nine weeks. We're actually going to go through the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is somewhat unique. It is in the uh, category that's commonly called the pastoral epistles, which would include 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Um, I, I understand why they're calling it pastoral epistles, because Paul is writing from prison, but he is writing to Titus or to Timothy, and they are functioning in caring for the people, Titus on Crete, Timothy in the city of Ephesus. Uh, it is generally supposed that not only was Timothy in Ephesus for 1 Timothy, but also for 2 Timothy. But they're, they're caring pastorally. Technically, though, they're actually functioning apostolically. They're not just caring for a small group of people, but they are overseeing a number of elders uh, either on the island of Crete or in a city. And so for Timothy, he would be temporarily overseeing what was going on in the city of Ephesus. Paul, however, is in Rome. He's not just under house arrest now. Paul is actually in a dungeon, a cold dungeon, and he realizes that his life is soon going to be coming to an end. We discover this in chapter 4, but he, he realizes that he doesn't have too much time left. And so he writes to Timothy pretty much his last word. Second Timothy technically is the last letter that Paul pens. Before we jump into this and I read it, I want to ask you, has anyone, anyone ever given you advice, solicited or unsolicited advice? They say that sound travels slowly. Have you ever heard that before? Sound actually travels slowly. They've tested this. I've heard it said that the things you say to your teenagers don't actually reach them until they're in their 30s or 40s. So I've heard. Now, how many of you have ever given advice, but you also, with the advice, brought some correction? Oh, we love that, don't we? Especially love it when people give that to us, right? Solicited or unsolicited. But the truth is, there are times in which correction needs to come. Now, let me tell you this, that correction takes place best in the context of relationship. The closer the relationship, the easier it is to not just give accurate advice because you know them well, but it's easier to also receive correction. And I'm just going to encourage you, if you are in a leadership position and you need to bring correction to the people under you, the better you know them, the more they trust you, the easier it is to be able to bring the correction and for them to heed that correction. The more you spend away from your, the, those under you, the more distant they feel from you. And it's as if, you know, hey, you do not understand my situation. So how do you think you can even speak into it? Now, granted, you're the employer or you're the boss and I'm not. But so there's just friction that builds up. Paul has to bring a measure of correction 
to Timothy in this letter. We're actually going to begin to discover that this week, a little bit more next week. Paul realizes that there is a persecution that is rising ever since Nero started with the the burning of uh, Rome in 64, blamed the Christians for it, but the persecution has become more and more intense and (coughs) it is about to culminate with his life being taken in about 67 AD and Peter's life as well. They say that Paul was beheaded and that Peter was actually hung on a cross upside down. He refused to be hung as his Savior was on a cross, and so they hung him upside down. Paul has some things to say before his time is done, though. I'm entitling this sermon series, Going Through 2 Timothy, Unashamed. Unashamed. As we go through this, you're going to discover why I'm named it this. Paul, as I say, is it's about... 66 AD, they say, close to his death. What I want to do is I just want to read the first two verses here as Paul sets up this letter to bring that ounce of correction. Listen to the words of the Lord. 2 Peter chapter 2. I'm actually going to read verses 1 through 7, but right now, just the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life, that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, did you see that? To Timothy, my dear son. Why does does he call him my dear son? Paul was never married. Paul never had any children. But he's calling Timothy his dear son. Not just his son, but his dear son. Well, let me just take you back maybe almost, um, it would probably be about 20 plus years, and Paul comes across Timothy. Luke records it in Acts chapter 16. I'm just going to be reading the first three verses, Acts 16, 1 through 3. He, referring to Paul, came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess, and a believer, that is a believer in Jesus, not just a believer in God, but a believer in Jesus, but whose father was a Greek. Now, some have supposed that the reason why they're making this contrast was because that his father was not even a believer in Jesus at all. Just a a Greek, a a Gentile, did not follow Jesus, did not follow God, verse 2. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him, referring to Timothy, Paul, wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews. Not because it was required by the law, because that was done away with in Christ. He's doing it so as to open the door for more effective ministry, so that he would be, because generally he would go, Paul would go to the Jewish synagogue first when he went into a city, began to proclaim the Messiah, proving Jesus was the Messiah from the Old Testament scriptures, And the very first objection they could bring up was, hey, what about this guy, Timothy? He's a Jew and he's not even circumcised, or at least he's a half Jew and he's not even circumcised. What? And so not because it was required by the law, but because it would open the door for more effective ministry, Paul had Timothy circumcised. Paul, excuse me, Timothy is probably around 20 or at least a late teenager, and he is getting circumcised. Woohoo! And 
Paul takes Timothy with him. Now, apparently, Timothy has come to Christ. It's very possible, seeing that Acts 16 is Paul's second missionary journey, that it's possible when he, on his first missionary journey, when he went through Lystra, Derby, Iconium, that Timothy came to Christ. That's possible. He may have come to Christ at a very early age. We do know that he learned the scriptures from an early age because he was raised by a Jewish mother, a very good Jewish mother. At some point, the family embraces Christ, and Timothy has grown so much in the Lord that Paul recognizes that the Spirit of God is heavy upon him, and he says, basically, Timothy, I want you to come with me, and everybody speaks well of Timothy. This is probably about 48 A.D., where Paul and Timothy, Paul takes Timothy under his wing. Now, let me just emphasize here the close, the, the, some of the, so Timothy is a recent convert. His mother's a Jewess. His father probably a Gentile and an unbeliever. He's spoken well of. He goes with Paul. He is called later on, several years later, he's called an apostle by Paul himself in First Thessalonians. He starts off first his letter to the Thessalonians, probably about 52 or so A.D., and he begins it, Paul, Timothy, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the Thessalonians. And later, chapter 2, verse 7, 6, he says, we apostles, in the plural, did not want to be a burden to you. So, in essence, to make a long story short, they chose to work and not be a financial burden on them. So they worked day and night, laboring in the kingdom, and Paul was a tent maker doing the side job to bring in the finances. And so he makes this point that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were actually apostles. They're functioning apostolically, bringing the good news, planting churches, seeking to uh, bring people to Christ and mentor them in the faith. And so this is now Timothy's responsibility. The time frame, as I say, is about 49 AD. The second, the first missionary journey ended just about a year or so before, shortly after the Jerusalem Council in Acts, six, excuse me, Acts 15. On Paul's fourth missionary journey that Luke does not write about, now we gather that he did a fourth missionary journey just from the books or letters that were written after 62 AD. And it appears that during that time, maybe around 64 AD, Paul visits Ephesus and he leaves Timothy there. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes to him and says, Timothy, make sure that you do the job that I left you to accomplish while when I left you in Ephesus. Complete this task. It's probably been maybe two years or so later. Paul writes a second letter and that's what we're going to be studying. Paul, again, is in Rome in a dungeon. The persecution is rising. Timothy, however, appears somewhat hesitant to visit Paul while he's in prison. I'm going to read verse 8 just so that you can see that picture. Verse 8 says this, so, that word so in the Greek means therefore or in view of this. In view of what I just said, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join me 
or join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So we get this picture that maybe Timothy is a bit hesitant to visit Paul while he's in prison because by doing that, he's going to identify himself as a Christian and not just some old Christian, but a laborer, a co-laborer with Paul. And he's wondering, if I do that, will I too be thrown into that very same dungeon with Paul? Maybe as a young man, he's in his late 30s by this time, maybe he too would lose his life. So he's a bit hesitant to do this. Paul, in chapter 1 and chapter 4, talk about how so many people have deserted him for this very reason. But Timothy is his son in the faith. His, his father, no doubt an unbeliever, did not mentor him in becoming a mighty man of God. Paul did. And so because of this, they're close. Have you ever had someone, not your parents, but someone older than you, who had really poured a lot into you, bring a measure of correction to your life. That's this situation. That's Timothy receiving the counsel of a man who's some 30 years older than him. Wise counsel, and not just counsel, but a challenge, a calling him on the carpet. We're going to see that develop a little bit more next week. But in view of this, Paul tells him this, starting with verse 3. I thank God whom I serve, as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois, and then in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline or self-control. Again, Paul and Timothy are close. He calls them my dear son. He says, recalling your tears. When Paul left him, he remembered Timothy's tears. Timothy wept when they parted company. Perhaps Paul shared his vision of taking the gospel to Spain. Or if, they've already, if he had already visited Spain to taking it to Dalmanutha or some other region that had not heard the gospel. And Timothy realized persecution awaits. Maybe he would never see Paul again. And so there's tears, if not for potential danger, just the fact that this father in the faith that had poured so much into him was now leaving him. And Timothy would now have to function as a man of God without his mentor. Paul knew his mother and his grandmother very well. So in this context, then, Paul brings the sounds of correction. Do you see right there where it says your sincere faith? It's interesting that he points that out. This word sincere literally translated means not hypocritical. We actually get our word hypocrite from the root word of this word since we translate sincere. 
but it's in the negative, so it's not hypocritical. Why would Paul bring this up that, Timothy, I remember your unhypocritical faith? Why doesn't he just say your strong faith? Here's why, I think. He's, there, there is this undertone of challenge. Listen to me, Timothy, I believe in you. I do not think that your faith is hypocritical. Do you know what a hypocrite is? Hypocrite is someone who says one thing but does another. Timothy is tempted as he is training people to become leaders, as he is preaching the gospel, that maybe as he would shrink back in this time of persecution, that he would not speak boldly for Christ. Even though he's encouraging others to do this. So Paul says, Timothy, listen, your faith is without hypocrisy. It is sincere. I believe it. And I'm sure that when you say something like that to, to, to someone that looks up to you, there's this sense of, you know what? If there is an ounce of hypocrisy there, I don't want it. I want to live up to what he just declared over me. Have you ever had someone just speak a profound word that just, it was like, yes, that is who I am? The angel, when he appeared to Gideon, called him mighty warrior. He, he wasn't sure that he'd ever fought in a battle before. Why, why are you calling me mighty warrior? But it was a prophetic charge that Gideon would be raised up very soon to lead Israel against the Midianites, 130,000 of them, in, in fact. But Paul is saying to Timothy, you have unhypocritical faith. And Timothy is like, okay, I'll take it on the chin. Yes, that is who I am. Sincere faith. No contradiction. He says, I am persuaded now lives in you. This sincere faith that he saw in his grandmother and in his mother, he says, I am persuaded now lives in you. You almost hear this sound like, Timothy, come on now, convince me, show me this is who you are. Because that's, I believe you are that, I now need you to rise up, be that man. Be that man with sincere faith. Be that man who does not waver in the face of persecution or potential persecution, who refuses to shrink back. That's who I'm calling you to be. That's who you are. I'm persuaded. It's as if, come on now, Timothy. And he says this in verse 6. For this reason. For this reason. Before I launch into that, let me go back to verse 1. Understand where Paul is coming from. He's an apostle. He's called by the will of God, to be an apostle, it says, in accordance with or according to the promise of life. Paul, life was promised to him. Just like Timothy, but as an apostle, as a follower of Jesus Christ, he had life. Even though he may die within the year, he was fully convinced, hey, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. What's the big deal? If you die, so be it. He 
get to be with Jesus like forever, man. So this promise of life compels him to continue to proclaim as an apostle the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, see, that's where Paul's coming from. He needs to impart this vision of facing persecution and not backing down. Of being bold as a lion when fear surrounds him. So for this reason, that is in view of this sincere faith, Paul, the one who is proclaiming the promise of life through Christ, tells him, look, because of this, in view of this, for this reason, fan into flame the gift of God. Now this word, to fan into flame, is just one Greek word, and literally translated, it means to bring the fire to life again. So rekindle. Very fair translation, or fan into flame. Bring the fire to life again. I want to just tell you something. That if you're a follower of Jesus, because the Spirit of God lives in you, there is a fire in you. When Apollos preached, Luke in, in Acts 18 says that he was fervent in spirit. And the Greek word for fervent there is literally glowing. Glowing. It's like a fire. It's just glowing. He's fervent. He's passionate, we would say maybe, in spirit. When you have the spirit of God in you, there is a passion for the things of the kingdom. And we can become weary, church. I get that. I've been through that kind of stuff where you're just trying so hard and it's like, God, no matter what I do, it just doesn't seem to work. No matter how hard I try, it just doesn't and, and we can get frustrated we we can no matter how hard i pray no matter how hard i try to share my faith with the people around me and we can get discouraged paul is challenging timothy fan into flame rekindle stoke the flames the gift of god that is in you the gift of god that is in you this fire, let it rage again. It's been dwindling. Fan it into flame. Rekindle it. Breathe on it. It's amazing how when you're making a little fire out in the middle of nowhere and you're, you're trying really hard and then when you blow on it, it's, it can just suddenly combust if you've got good kindling or straw or whatever that can catch on fire. Boom! When it gets that oxygen... And in essence, Paul is saying, Timothy, breathe on it. Bring it to life again. It's, it's been, the passion has been dwindling. It's maybe a little pilot like, Timothy, come on. The persecution's rising. I get that. Fan it into flame. What is this gift of God, though? Now, I've heard some say that it's the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm not going to doubt that the Holy Spirit is mentioned here. He is. The Holy Spirit's mentioned in this passage, but just not here. That's not what he's referring to when he says the gift of God. Though we do find in the book of Acts that the Spirit is the gift of God, but the Greek word that's used there is dorea. This word is charisma or charisma. And charisma is never used to refer to the gift of the Spirit. 
it's always used to refer to the gifts of the Spirit. It is a gift then that the Spirit has given to Timothy and it is that gift that is dwindling and needs to be fanned or stoked once again, fanned into flame. What would that gift be? Apparently, the gift was imparted to Timothy when Paul laid his hands on him. Let me, if you could keep your finger here, just go a few pages to the left to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I believe this is where this gift is actually imparted to Timothy. And it happens at his ordination. Apparently, it says here in chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, to Timothy, do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Now this could be referring to a different gift, but I think he's referring to the very same gift that Paul is saying apparently has been dwindling in passion. Now Timothy, fan it into flame. It was given to you when the body of elders laid their hands on them. And the body of elders would generally lay hands on someone when they're being commissioned into a ministry of some sort, being a pastor or an apostle or a prophet of some ministry. The elders, the presbytery, would lay hands on the person. And here it says that while they were doing that, a prophetic word came out. We read about that actually just three chapters earlier at the end of chapter one in first Timothy. I'm not going to read that to you, but apparently a prophetic word came out that was very encouraging, very instructive for Timothy, apparently happening when the elders laid hands on him. But not only did a prophetic word come out while the body of elders is laying hands on them, but apparently Paul is saying in this passage that we just read that when he laid his hands on Timothy, there was a gift that was imparted. Maybe Paul was the one who gave the prophetic word. I have an inkling what this gift is, though it's not specifically mentioned here, because in verse 8, you remember it says, don't be ashamed to testify about me. It says, it starts off with so. In view of what I've just said, so do not be ashamed to testify. Whatever gift this is that was imparted to Timothy at his ordination by the laying hands of by the laying on of Paul's hands through a prophetic word, it had something to do with testifying to Jesus Christ. Some sort of teaching gift or evangelism gift. I personally think it was an apostolic gift in which he was charged to be a herald of the gospel, to proclaim it no matter what, to found churches, to be a father in the faith to many others, and that's exactly what Timothy did. However, some timidity was creeping in. We discover this when we read just a little bit further here where it says, which is in you through the laying on of my hands, verse 7, for... God did not give us a spirit of timidity. This word timidity is the word fear or cowardice. It's not phobos that we get you know, phobias from. It's, it's a different word, delia, which basically means cowardice, a shrinking back, a hesitant, a timidity, a fear. It can even be translated terror. Do you remember when Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, do you remember when Jesus is in the boat 
and his disciples, <clears throat> he was asleep, and the disciples woke him up, and they're all frantic. Jesus, wake up. We're about to drown. Help us. And Jesus rebukes them for their fear, their, the NIV translates it, terror, their timidity. But stronger than you know, being a little shy or timid, it's cowardice. It's the opposite of faith. Paul tells Timothy, in essence, you're lacking faith. See, faith is our response to what the Spirit of God wants to do in our life. God can give you all the gifts in the world, but if you lack faith, you'll never walk in it. The opposite of faith is this timidity, this shrinking back, this hesitancy, this fear, this, but if, what will happen to me? And, and I have to say, I don't think Timothy's the only one who's wrestling with this. We read other names, both in this chapter and in the last chapter, who have done the same thing. The persecution is intense. I don't want to cast stones at any of those people or look down upon any of them. I don't know what it's like to have to face the possibility of losing my life. I hope I never will. But the truth is, if I do, man, I, I hope I will stand firm. I hope I will not shrink back. I hope I will still boldly identify with Christ not never renounce him, but always be willing and bold to tell people about Jesus no matter what people think about me. And so this is the call to each of you. You have been given a spirit of great boldness. You've not been given a spirit of timidity. Great boldness. This, this, the next three things you have been given a spirit of love, power, love, and I'm going to say self-control. Those three things. He, this is the spirit of God. I, I think that they should have, in NIV, made the word spirit, capital S, because he's talking about not just an attitude of love and an attitude. Sometimes the word spirit can mean an attitude. I do not think that it means that here. This is the spirit of God. You are not bringing faith to the table, Timothy. Even though you've been given the spirit of God, who is a spirit of love, excuse me, power, love, and self-control. Timothy, you need to walk in that call of God. You need to walk in that anointing that you have been given your response right now needs to be faith, needs to be sincere faith, and not timidity. Don't shrink back. If you were to read the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews touches on this. Hey, people, don't shrink back. Some of you have had your property confiscated. A lot of persecution, and you have not shrunk back. You have not abandoned your confidence that you had at first, and you are continuing to pursue Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews applauds them in chapter 12, chapter 10. Way to go. Great job. Timothy, come on. You know, as when I was a little boy, there were times in which my brothers and I 
or my brother and I would, I'm sure we probably did something really knuckleheaded. I'm sure that we did. We probably badmouthed the wrong person or my brother would badmouth the wrong person. And while there's this confrontation that's escalating, I see that my brother said something really stupid and I'm like, why did you say this? But what do I do? Because if I don't step in, they're going to beat him up. I have to make a choice right now. What am I going to do? And I would make the choice to defend him. I would back him up. But I knew that by backing him up and standing with him, I was going to get pounded. I just knew it. But us Curtises were really thick-skulled. We defended one another tooth and nail to the death, so to speak. It felt that way, honestly, it did. And I'm, I'm thinking, oh, Chris, if I defend you, they're going to kill me too. But I've got to do this. He's my younger brother. I can't abandon him. I can't run away. And so I, w- I would stand up for him. And together, we would run as fast as we could. <laughs> and hopefully, they wouldn't catch us. But see, we, there were some fences, and we knew how to jump those fences. Like real, We practiced it because we ran away from each other a lot. <laughs> and we jumped those fences. So we knew how to get away from these. Anyway, so I would identify with my brother. But in doing that, I knew that the, the fists were going to start flying in my direction next. Can I just ask you this? Have you ever been in a situation where you knew that if you spoke up in defending truth, and especially in our day when the Bible is looked down upon, that if you stand for what the Bible actually teaches, I'm not saying that you get in their face and you start pointing the finger at them. I'm just simply saying that you stand for truth. You know that if you do that, that half the people in the office there are going to probably send you hate mail or hate emails. Office emails, that is. that That they would probably look down upon you, say something to you, start into an argument. You know that if you make the choice to do that, you're going to get the flack. You just know. Let me ask you, if you've ever been in that situation, what did you do? Did you remain silent? You know, I'm just not going to say anything. I'm just going to let it go. When they start talking negatively about Christians in general, do you step in and say, you know what? Maybe there's another perspective in this. You don't have to argue with them and try and prove that they're wrong, but you know, you know what? I, I think the Jesus that you're talking about is not the Jesus that I follow. And they're like, what, huh? You're, you're a Christian too? Now, if you've been there for five years and they just find out that you're a Christian, that's probably not a real good thing, but sometimes that happens. But we, we finally had the courage to speak boldly. So in your various situations where you're working, There is a strategic way, I believe, in which God wants you to be his witness. That doesn't mean that if you're working at Walmart that you get on the PA and you start preaching the gospel. I'm not suggesting that. 
okay? Because everyone knows that the next step is that you're going to get fired. There's probably a more strategic way. My dad was a 12th grade English teacher. And as a 12th grade English teacher, he had to be very careful what he said up front. He'd done it for 35 to 40 years before he retired. So he was very good at being able to say something that would cause students to want to ask him questions afterwards. And he had absolutely no problem to talk to them after class about Jesus Christ. My dad was a choir director. He led worship music at our very traditional church. But my dad did love the Lord. And he wanted his students to have that same life-transforming relationship with Jesus that he had. And about the time that I graduated was about the time that my dad's faith in Christ deepened even more. That's about the time of segregation. And for the high school that I went to, it, it really created a lot of issues. And my dad just did what he could to continue to shine the light of Christ. So where you are at, I just want you to be praying and think creatively. God, how can I be a bold witness there? Paul tells us that our response is sincere faith. That's what we need because he has given you a spirit of power, love, and self-control. Let's look at this first one, this, the, a spirit of power. This is the actual word dunamis. So it's not just like might or strength. It is miraculous Power. That's how the word dunamis is used in the New Testament. It is, it is mighty power. It is resurrection type power. That is the spirit that lives in you. That is the spirit that empowers you to do something really bold that we're wondering, why on earth am I doing this? I know I need to. I remember when I was in college and in my you know first year philosophy class and you know, the professor just said some things and I disagreed with it. And every time he said that, I had to wait. You know, is this something that I should raise my hand or no? And so you really had to weigh that. But I knew that I would regret it at the end of the, at the, end of the semester if I never raised my hand and if I never said anything. And so where there were several times in which I raised my hand, I tried to be as gracious and courteous as I could, but I sought to stand for what the Bible said. I thought, sought to stand for why I even believed that there was a God and why I even believed that this book right here was written by him through men and actually had authority. Because in that philosophy class, it did not. So said the professor. And so I, was, I sought to be gracious, but I knew if I said nothing, that I would be accountable for that before the Lord, and especially as, as I sensed that call of my life to represent him as a pastor or evangelist or whatever God was calling me to at the time, I didn't completely know. I just knew I wanted to serve him as much as I possibly could with, with every amount of time that I had. And so when, when this is saying that the spirit of power, of dunamis, miraculous power lives in you, understand this, that when you speak, not just Timothy, with his gift of speaking or testifying in a role of as an apostle, but whatever gift you have, understand that it's the spirit of dunamis power that is working through you. 
when God is working through you like that, there's a sense of confidence. I am going to, I'm going to fan this gift into flame and I refuse to back down. I refuse to shut my mouth up, even though all of culture through, through cancel culture is trying to shut us down, graciously testify to the truth. You don't have to stir up a firestorm unless you're crude, unless you're brash. Sometimes you do that just by standing for truth. So there's a, there is a, there's a wise way to do this. But even so, sometimes the fire comes. And sometimes people persecute anyway. And our response is, I'm representing Jesus to the day I die. Every single one of you is an ambassador for the promise of life, just as Paul is here. He functions differently than you do, or functions differently, but you're still an ambassador for this promise of life. How can, how can I do that? How can I represent? How can I point people to Jesus? Whatever gift God has given you, if it's a gift of serving, and all you say is, how may I help you and just serve, even when it is so utterly inconvenient for you, and just and, and maybe at the very end, the, the Lord just directs you to say something like, I, I just want you to know that Jesus has changed my life, and I just love serving people. So it was my pleasure to do that for you today. Something as simple as that. For people to see this love in your heart, and then to testify where it's from. I'm not saying you have to do that every time. The Lord is going to lead you differently every occasion. But you got to fan that flame, that you got to fan that gift into flame regularly. Then he says the spirit of love. And I'm going to just tell you this right now. Perfect love casts out fear. When God's love is in you and it is been fanned into flame, so it's a fire in you. There is some you just you are willing to sacrifice and serve no matter what you've got to do to be able to impact somebody and love on them and point them and show them Jesus in your life. You may not say anything, but you represent Christ so well. Now, I was so proud of Juliana because her boss did a review of her and mentioned three things that that. She was a servant. I, I'm trying to remember the other two things. And I'm not going to ask her to remember because that would be embarrassing for her. But the boss basically pointed out three uh, qualities of Christ in her life that she shone and did excellently at. And to what degree she has shared her faith or mentioned how much, you know, that she's a Christian. So, and I know that she has to some degree because she's now working part-time so that she can serve in the kingdom of God more. And her boss knows this. But her boss sees something in her in her last review, praised her for three things that represent a Christian. They, they, they scream Christian. And it was, oh, 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 you have them. I see that hand. Yeah. All right, excuse me. There were five things. Five things. <laughs> Man, it's gotten hot in here all of a sudden, hasn't it, huh, Juliana? <laughs> and so she's, she, she's chosen to represent Christ so well. And, and she, she seeks to 
realize that her witness is on the line every time she's interacting with people. Timothy, hey, your reputation for being a follower of Jesus is on the line right now. What are you going to do? Are you going to speak one way but live another? And we might think, well, wow, that's, that's like harsh. I mean, he could lose his life. And, and Paul, you're telling him to, to speak up, even if it means that he dies? I mean, is it really that important? Look, if he just chose to say nothing, he would live longer, and maybe he could share the gospel more when, it's just, when the persecution just isn't so great. Well, that's just not what Jesus called him to do. Jesus calls us to shine our light, especially when it's darkest, even if it means that you lose it. If you commend the Father, if you commend Jesus before the world, Jesus will commend you before the Father. And I'm looking forward to a commendation. That is what I long for. The spirit of love. You know, can I just encourage you? Allow this love, this the spirit of God who is love in you, allow him to just overwhelm you. Do this. On a little piece of paper, write down the names of the people that you come in contact with regularly at your workplace. Just write their names down. And then for one week, pray for those people. And I don't mean, Lord, bless Joanne and bless Sally and bless Lisa and bless John John and bless, you know, I mean, Father, I know that John is going through a really hard time in his marriage and I, I, and he, he's critical of his wife and he's just really going through a lot and God, he has been so miserable. He needs you to rescue him. And if I have an opportunity to point him to Jesus, would you open that door? But God, would you change John's life? Because right now he's without Christ and he has no hope. And I mean, pray for that person like he were your favorite brother. Pray for these people regularly and allow God's love to be stirred up in your heart. Don't be afraid to share, shed tears when you're praying for them. But pray earnestly for them. L allow that love to be stirred up. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you this right now. If you are praying earnestly for people in your workplace, you're going to be amazed at how much compassion you have when you're with them, how patient you'll be with them, by the way, but how much you will love them and just be looking for opportunities to say something on behalf of Christ. It, it, it just it becomes natural when you really love people and you want so much for them to have a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. And lastly, he says right here, in the spirit of self-discipline or self-control. This word, it, it's, it's a compound word. They're not exactly sure where it comes from, but it probably comes from sozo, which means to save, and franao, which means to think or set your mind on. So it means to be delivered from wrong thinking. And it's translated sometimes to come to one's senses. To not allow your emotions to lead you, but to think 
clearly. Have you ever been in a situation where an emotion, even a fear, you just freeze? You're petrified. You know, when I played hide-and-seek, sometimes I was terrified that they would find me. Or when I was running away from the bullies in my neighborhood because I said something really stupid and I was hiding. I was afraid they were going to find me and then they would pummel me. But have you ever had a fear and it you just froze as a result of that? Have you ever had an emotion that you, maybe an anger, an emotion, and it just seemed to totally control you? Paul was saying, Timothy, don't let that emotion of fear control you. Don't let that Fear of people rejecting you control you. People, we all want friends at our workplace, don't we? If you don't want friends at your workplace, I'm going to pray for you. Something's wrong. We all want friends. We all want people to like us. We want to like people. We want to work well with them. We want to love on them, even the unlovely, because we're followers of Jesus. We want them to encounter that love of Christ. But when an emotion controls us, it can stop us dead in our tracks. And he's encouraging him, look, don't let that. Be in self-control, Timothy. Allow that perfect love to cast out that fear. I'm gonna, I want to close in prayer. I want us, as we are realizing the times, the days in which we are in, the workplace where we are at, the, that, that's generally where we are going to spend a lot of time rubbing shoulders with people, wherever that takes place for you, because not everybody actually works at a place of employment these days. They may be remote or they, wherever you are at where you're rubbing shoulders with people, God wants you to be his witness there, not to back down but to be fervent in our spirit and to ask that God stir that fire up for you. I'm going to pray for you that that's exactly what God will do. He would stir that fire up in your heart. And some of us, we, we, were, we used to be so passionate for the Lord and we have gone through trials and heartache and hurts. And we just, we take that step back and, and we're afraid sometimes to really serve God with all of our heart. Father, I just pray right now that you would stir up our hearts, God. That that gift, whatever it is, Lord, a speaking gift or serving gift, stir that gift up in us, God. Give us that boldness, Lord, and that sincerity of faith to stir that faith, to stir that gift of God that is in us up. And I just ask you, Lord, we are saying we are your servants, Lord, no matter what it takes. Make us your mouthpiece. No matter how hard it is, may we speak up for you when we need to. And I just ask you, Lord, may we live our lives so that people find the teaching of Jesus attractive in our life. That people know that we're followers of Jesus and they see it in us. God, help us as we stand with you in this crucial hour and i just pray give us great boldness remove any spirit of fear timidity and fill us with faith that we would take up our cross and we would follow you jesus
Jesus. God, there is grace for this. We want to tap into that. We want to walk in it. Help us, God. In Jesus' name we pray.